0: Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together in fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the fact that you have provided uh, your word for us to give us all of the information we need to understand uh, the creation in which we live, to understand what the real issues in life are, to understand what the problem is between man and you, and to understand what that perfect solution is. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, that you will give us a greater understanding of all that you have provided for us in salvation, uh, that we may have a greater appreciation of your perfect grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in light of the fact that for the last nine or ten months we've been studying creation and evolution, of course, this always puts the believer the Bible-believing Christian in conflict with whatever academic institution he's involved in usually. Even many Christian schools, there's a challenge, but especially on the secular campus. And somebody sent me a, a pertinent joke. There was this atheist professor. This is the kind of situation we all love to fantasize about at times. This atheist professor was teaching a college class, and he told the class that he was going to prove that there was no God. So he stood up on the platform and he said, God, if you're real, I want you to knock me off this platform. I'm going to give you 15 minutes. And so as 10 minutes went by and he continued to harangue God and taunt God. Here I am, God. I'm still waiting. Well, as he got down to the last couple of minutes, this big 250-pound football player came walking into class late and heard the professor taunting God. So just as the 15 minutes were almost off, he decided to run over and he just blindsided that professor and knocked him right off the platform. Well, the professor got up and shook himself off and, and in anger he said, where did you come from and why did you do that? Football player said, well, God was busy. He sent me. Isn't life good? All right, well, last week we wrapped up our study in the third chapter of Genesis, and in keeping with the uh, modus operandi of this study, I am concluding each section with some topical studies r- related to the key doctrines covered in the previous section. So tonight we're not really looking at a specific passage in Genesis per se, but what we are doing is investigating and looking at the to- doctrine of original sin. We started this last time, so some of what we're covering tonight will be a bit of review. But we're looking at this issue of Adam's original sin. Now, that is a technical theological term that is not found in the Bible, but it was developed in the early stages of church history. Actually, the first person credited with that uh, term was uh, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, who lived from about 350 to 430 A.D. So let's get a few points by way of introduction to the doctrine of Adam's original sin. First of all, the term Adam's original sin refers to Adam's first sin. It's not his whole life. It's not other sins he committed. It's the first sin he committed, which was the sin of disobedience in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the issue. As we have studied, the God put, uh, created Adam and Esha, placed them in the garden. It was a literal garden, a literal place. They were literally two individuals. This is not mythology. It's not legend. It's historical reality. And the reason we know, one reason we know that is because throughout the scriptures, there is so much teaching About the impact of Adam's sin, that if it's not, and it always treats Adam's sin as a literal historical event. If that does not occur historically, then it takes the foundation completely out from under, uh, what is taught in the New Testament regarding sin and salvation. So our first point, the term Adam's original sin refers to Adam's first sin. Second point, Adam was De- the designated head of the human race he's the designated head of the human race, and that is called federal or representative headship. This is called federal or representative headship Federal uh, headship is a uh, a theological uh, understanding, as we'll see in our study this evening there's two views on the headship of Adam to the human race. The first is called federal headship. And the second is called seminal headship. But at this point, we're just going to say Adam was the designated head of the human race, the federal or representative head. And that means that it was Adam's sin and not the woman's sin that is determinative. And for a passage on this, we have 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, where we are told, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So in some sense, her sin is not as, uh, as significant as his. First, because he's the head, he's formed first, and second, because she's deceived. Her sin did not impact the creation. It did not impact, uh, their progeny. It was not her sin that was determinative. It was Adam's sin. So this view is called federal or representative headship. Third point, federalism, and I don't mean a form of government here, although that's where the idea comes from. That's where the term federal government comes from. It's a representative government. Uh, Federalism is the view that Adam is the representative of the entire human race. Therefore, Adam's decision would affect all of the human race, In the old Puritan primers that they used to teach reading, they would have little rhymes with each letter of the alphabet, and with letter A, the rhyme was, In Adam's fall, we send all. And that's how they taught doctrine to their kids, was through little rhymes that they used associated with the alphabet. So this term is called federalism. If Adam's decision was... ...set up to be a representative decision so that whatever he decided, however he went, that would determine the course of the human race. If he passed the test and he uh, re- rejected the temptation and did not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then all of his descendants uh, would be born with positive, confirmed righteousness... And if he failed the test, then all of his descendants would be born in corruption, in a world of suffering and spiritual death, as well as physical death. Therefore, when Adam sinned as humanity's representative head, the entire race fell. In Adam's sin, we all fell. Now, there are certain examples biblically. The key text is one we'll look at in detail in Romans uh, Romans five twelve through 14. But there are many examples in the scripture of representative headship at work where God designates a certain person as the head of the family or as the head of a people group and their decision has ramifications that goes down through, through, throughout all of history. For example, in Genesis chapter 9, there is a curse, uh, announced by Noah on his grandson Canaan. Actually, it is his son Ham who violates, uh, Noah's privacy, but when Noah pronounces a blessing and a curse on his sons, that blessing that curse fell on Canaan. Canaan wasn't even the one directly involved in the sin, and it is actually his descendants on whom the the curse falls. For that part, we can also say that the blessing on Japheth was one that didn't actually go to Japheth himself but went to all of the descendants of Japheth. And when we get there in Genesis 9, we will have a fascinating study on on the outworking of that blessing and curse down through all of human history. So Noah's curse is one example of a representative headship at work. Another is with Esau and Jacob. When Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, all of his descendants suffered the consequences of that as they were excluded from the blessing of the promise uh, to Abraham and to Isaac. And, of course, the promise to Abraham, again, is a promise of blessing to a representative head. The promise to Abraham was for all of his descendants. They were all in that line of blessing. So you can go on and on throughout the scriptures and show how there are there's example after example after example of someone's either their positive decision to trust God and the consequences that had for their descendants or their negative decision. For example, the last uh, king or one of the last kings in the line of Judah was Jeconiah, and he was such an evil king that God said that that none of his descendants would benefit from the Davidic uh, covenant. And that was one of the reasons, not the only reason and not even the most important reason, but that was one of the reasons why Joseph could not be the physical father of Jesus. One of the reasons why Jesus had to be born of a virgin is because Joseph was in that line of descendant from Jeconiah. And uh, so none of his physical descendants could be an heir to the throne of David. So Mary came from a different line. She, too, had her lineage going back to to David so that through Mary, uh, Jesus had, uh, had a right to the throne of David. So there are many examples of representative headship at work in the Scriptures where God designates one individual to be the key person, and their decision affects all of their descendants. Now, that seems... To be unfair to modern Americans, we think, well, each person ought to be responsible for their own consequences and that's not fair that my great-great-grandfather made some stupid decision and now I have to suffer for it. But it happens all of the time. It happens every single day as we have some representative that is legally and correctly elected to go to Congress, either State House or Federal uh, Congress to represent us and the decisions that they make and the votes that they Uh, that they, uh, vote for in Congress are our votes. And whether you agree with their vote or not, that's, that is your vote. They are your representative and that's why it's important to vote so the next time you can, you can fire, fire them and put somebody good in their place. So federalism and the idea of a representative is something that is that has been a principle in operation throughout the Bible and is operational even in our world today. So we're, we're held accountable and we pay the consequences for numerous decisions that are made by our representatives and they may or may not be the decisions we think we would make. And the principle in the federal headship of Adam is that God in his omniscience knew that any human being put in that same situation with Adam under any set of circumstances, would end up committing the same sin eventually. So he is our honest representative. Well, that is the doctrine of federalism and federal headship. Point number three, federalism is the view that Adam is the representative of the entire human race. Now, the other view that has to do with the transmission of guilt, the transmission of guilt is the view called seminalism. Seminalism, from the Latin word seminal, meaning seed, this is the same word from which we get our word seminary. So when somebody goes off to seminary, and I always have to make this point, when some somebody who thinks they have the gift of pastor teacher goes to seminary, they are going to an institution where they will be taught seminal or seed form ideas. They do not go to seminary in order to get and, and go to classes where they are going to be taught doctrine to the level and to the degree that they will teach it as a pastor when they graduate, or to the level or degree to which you get taught the Word of God, or anybody in in what we call doctrinal churches. I've had people in the past tell me, many years ago, say, you just teach at such depth you ought to be a seminary professor. Well, if you're a seminary professor, you get to teach the Gospel of John in a 15-week semester. You know, you don't get to go very far beneath the surface. You get to deal with problem passages, and you get to deal with the overall structure of the book, book and some details, but you don't get to really develop the depth of doctrine that's in a gospel or an epistle that you do as a pastor. You go to seminary to get the seminal tools that, will, that you will develop over the rest of your life. So this is the word seminal. It means seed. And uh, the idea in seminalism, which was a view initially set forth by Augustine uh, back in the 4th century, 5th century, and was also held by Calvin and Luther as well as a number of others, is the view that all humanity participated physically in Adam's sin. That's this idea of seminal, that the sin nature and the guilt of Adam's sin was passed on physically through procreation. That's the idea of seminalism. It's not only the sin nature, but also the guilt of Adam's original sin are passed on physically through procreation. Now, if you sit in a seminary classroom or you read a a systematic theology, you will see that these two views are set against each other. And we'll put this up here on the overhead like this. On the one hand, you have theologians who argue for federalism. And then on the other hand, you have theologians that argue for seminalism. Now, before we go any further, let's look at the biblical support for seminalism. The biblical support for seminalism comes out of a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 9, which reads, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid ties through Abraham so to speak for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him now first of all we have to note a couple of things Levi was one of the sons of um, Jacob who later became known as Israel he was one of the progenitors of of 12 of the of the Jewish tribes Levi was the uh great grandson of Abraham. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Levi. So he's a great-grandson of Abraham. So when we read in verse 10, uh, his father, that should be his great-grandfather. So there's quite a distance of time. Abraham lived about 1900, uh, to 2000 BC. Levi came along about 150 to 200 years later. So Levi was not alive uh when abraham in genesis chapter uh 17 paid ties to melchizedek levi was not physically present there but what the writer of the he- of hebrew says is that he was there similarly in the loins of his father when abraham paid ties to melchizedek therefore you can say that levi paid ties to Melchizedek, and so the argument is: is this shows that there is a physical or a genetic tie or connection, uh, and that is passed down physically through procreation from one uh, from one generation to the other. Now, as we look at this and we look at the arguments, you have Romans 5:12 to support federalism, and you have uh, Hebrews seven, nine, and ten to support seminalism. And most of the time they will juxtapose these one or the other. But the fact is there are elements of both that are true. There are elements of both that are true. And so we have to refine our thinking a little bit. Remember, in federalism, both the sin nature and Adam's original sin are imputed on the basis of the representative principle. In seminalism, the sin nature plus Adam's original sin are passed on genetically. But the way both are true is that the sin nature is passed on genetically, and Adam's original sin is then on the basis of Adam's federal headship, is then imputed to that sin nature. So there are elements of both that are true, and this is how you put them together. Adam's original sin is the result of the federal headship of Christ. Seminalism is a result of the physical connection. Um, Excuse me, Adam's original sin is imputed on the basis of Adam's federal headship over the race, and the seminalism, the sin nature is passed on genetically from father to the next generation. Now, let's see how this works itself out and explain some of the mechanics of this. This is under point number five, understanding how the elements of both are true, elements of both are true. We'll first look at seminalism. Seminalism. In seminalism, we see that the sin nature is passed on genetically through procreation. The sin nature is passed on genetically through procreation. Now, the way this works is like this. On the male side, you have an operation where you have the uh, the, uh, uh, sperm cell, and every cell in the human body, contains 46 chromosomes. And that cell and those chromosomes give you the blueprint of who you are. That contains your DNA and all your genetic information. Now, those chromosomes pass on the genetic aspect to the sin nature, the physical aspect. We know this because the sin nature is generally referred to in Scripture with such terms as flesh, the sarks, as well as, in Romans 6, you have the term body, body of sin, and other terms indicate a physical dimension to the sin nature. Now, when these chromosomes that contain this genetic corruption of the sin nature are passed on, they go down through the male. In a process called spermatogenesis, spermatogenesis, you start off with one immature reproductive cell that has 46 chromosomes. So we'll start off here with one cell and it's got 46 chromosomes. And then it splits, it splits into two cells that have 23 chromosomes each, and then those two cells mature into two mature uh, sperm cells, and this is an operation called meiosis, this pr- operation of cell division. Then on the female side, you have an egg that is produced, and it starts off with 46 chromosomes, but in the process of meiosis it throws off at a couple of different stages it throws off 23 chromosomes as what's called polar bodies they're just this is a process of cell purification so that when it is ready for fertilization the the egg has only 23 chromosomes and it's been purified so on the female side you have a purified Egg on the male side see this sperm cell split you don't lose anything so you still have a sin nature here and a sin nature over here and when the sperm cell fertilizes the egg cell then you have sin nature and corruption passed on from one generation to the next now this shows one of the reasons for the virgin birth. Most of the time when you hear a lot of theologians talk about and Bible teachers talk about the virgin birth, they will simply say, well, all it was for was to show the miraculous birth of Jesus. But that just shows that they don't push far enough. Their thinking isn't deep enough. And unfortunately, this is something that plagues too many theologians and too many Bible teachers, is they don't really want to probe the text of Scripture or reality and think very deeply about some of these things. So you have every egg cell, every time you have a fertilized egg cell, it's corrupt with the sin nature. And so you have this genetically passed on sin nature that ends up being the basis for the imputation of Adam's original sin, or the home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. So through uh, mitosis, this should be M-E-T-I, mitosis, on the male part, you have this, the cell division, 23 chromosomes each, each corrupted with a sin nature, and that's the basis for fertilization. But when the male side is removed at the virgin, at the virgin conception and the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what happens in the virgin conception is the Holy Spirit causes the egg to have parthenogenesis without benefit of the sin nature so that the product is 100% true humanity minus a sin nature and minus Adam's original sin. Because there is no sin nature, there is no home for the assignment of Adam's original sin or the technical term is imputation of Adam's original sin. Therefore, in Jesus in his humanity is born without a sin nature and without the imputation of Adam's original sin. And this means that Jesus, in his humanity, is born perfect. He is born sinless or impeccable. He is born without sin. Now, that explains the seminalism side of the issue. It just deals with the physical transmission of the sin nature. Now, on the federalism side, where we see that Adam is our designated head, his guilt is imputed to us so that at the instant of birth, we are born and we have a sin nature. And that sin nature is going to be the home to which God is going to impute Adam's original sin, the guilt The legal guilt, not emotional guilt, not guilt feelings, but the physical, I mean, the legal guilt of Adam's original sin. Now, in order to understand this, we have to get into the doctrine of imputations. The doctrine of imputation, just to give a little background and review, because it's been some time since we went over the doctrine of imputations. There are two categories of imputation. There are two categories of imputation. The first is real imputations, real imputations, and the second is called judicial imputation, real and judicial imputation. Now, here's here's the definition. Real imputation is where the justice of God imputes under the principle of antecedents and affinity. So there's two ideas there, antecedents and affinity. First of all, what is imputed has an affinity, which means an agreement or a correspondence for that to which it is imputed. So that means that you have an affinity here between Adam's original sin, on the one hand, and its home, the sin nature. They are like things. There is no uh, discontinuity there. So we go on, read our definition. There are, uh, there is affinity, which is agreement or correspondence for that to which it is imputed. So there are two factors involved here. Uh, what is imputed from the justice of God and the home or the target for the imputation and what happens in a real imputation is that there's a harmony or agreement or affinity with the target of the imputation now in terms of antecedents that antecedent goes back for the, back to Adam's original sin So in terms of antecedents or that which precedes, it goes back to the original fall and the affinity is between, the agreement between, uh, the Adam's original sin and the sin nature. This makes it a real imputation where there is agreement or affinity there. That makes it a real imputation. So there are, there are two real imputations. The first is the personal sins Excuse me. The first should be. I've got them reversed here. No. The first. Have I got this backwards? Looking at my notes on the screen, um, there are real imputations. Let's skip ahead to the next slide. There are four real imputations. Four real imputations. The first is the one I've been describing, and that is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. Adam's original sin to the sin nature, and that is what we've described, where there is a, uh, antecedence and an affinity between the, uh, Adam's original sin and the sin nature that we are born with. The second type of, of, uh, Real imputation is eternal life to the human spirit. Eternal life to the human spirit. There is an affinity there. Uh, the human spirit is that which we are, which the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us at the instant of salvation. And that is what gives us an a relation, ability to understand and relate to God. So we have eternal life is imputed to the human spirit. And third, blessings in time are imputed to our perfect righteousness. So we have perfect righteousness imputed uh, from a judicial imputation, and then blessings in time are imputed to that. And then fourth, our blessings in eternity are imputed to the resurrection body. So those four imputations, let's review them again, four imputations are real. Adam's original sin to the sin nature, eternal life to the human spirit, Third, blessings in time to perfect righteousness. And then fourth, blessings in eternity to the resurrection body. And those are all real imputations because there is an affinity between uh, what is imputed and its home. Then we come to the second category of imputations, and these are judicial Imputations. Judicial imputations. Let me back up the slides here and we'll get our definition of judicial imputation. Judicial imputations take place where the justice of God imputes what is not antecedently one's own and where there is no uh, affinity. Where something is not antecedently one's own and where there is no uh, uh, affinity. In other words, there is no preceding action or event in the one to whom something is judicially imputed which warrants that imputation. Therefore, there is no affinity, no agreement, or inherent similarity between what is imputed and the recipient. Now, that becomes clear when we look at the two judicial imputations. The first is personal sin to Christ on the cross, Personal sin to Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ was born without a sin nature. He never committed any act of personal sin. Therefore, there's nothing in Christ. There's no antecedent action. There's nothing preceding the cross which has any affinity or correlation with sin. And the point here is that when personal sins were imputed to Christ, there was nothing in Christ that had any affinity to personal sin or there was no action in the life of Christ which made a basis for that imputation. In the same way, on the second type of imputation, which is perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation, there is no affinity. The believer is born with a sin nature. He's got three strikes against him. He's got a sin nature. He's been imputed Adam's original sin, and he has personal sin. So there's no antecedent action of perfection in man to make him worthy of salvation. There's nothing in man that has affinity with perfect righteousness. Therefore, it's a judicial imputation. Now one of the things that you should note here, as far as I've been able to discern in my study of theology, the only theologian I've ever read who made these distinctions was Lewis Berry Chaffer. Chafer made these distinctions, and he did not have but three imputations and uh, pastor theme developed a couple pointed out a couple of more, but Chaefer made the, this distinction between real imputation and judicial imputation, and it's a sound categorical decision, but I know that when uh, this church was looking for a pastor and sent out questionnaires to those people who were, were potential candidates, that one of the questions on that doctrinal questionnaire was to explain the different types of imputations and the difference between real and judicial imputations. Now, no student at Dallas Seminary anymore is required to read Lewisbury Chaffer's uh, systematic theology for their theology courses. They're not only not required to, they never do. So they're going to read a number of other theologians and never come to understand this distinction between real and judicial imputations. So unless you are someone who is schooled in Chaferian theology and in someone who understands Chaferian theology, you're not even going to have a clue what these concepts mean. And that is a sad commentary on the state of theological education today. So we see that there are... Uh, Just to go back to where where we started, there are uh, two categories, of two ways of explaining the relationship of Adam's sin to his descendants. And these are called federalism and seminalism. To remember this, you can remember a key word for federalism is representative. And a key word for seminal is physical. So that one is not physical and is going to be legal, and the other is going to be physical and genetic. And they both have elements of truth to them, and they are both supported by passages in the Scripture. Therefore, we can say that federalism deals with the imputation of Adam's original sin, and seminalism has to do with the transmission ...of the sin nature, the genetic transmission of the sin nature. And the way they come together is that at the instant of birth, you have Adam's Adam's original sin is imputed to the sin nature. And that is called a real imputation, a real imputation. So to understand that, let's look at the key passage for this, which is in Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. We'll look at these three verses, Romans 5.12 through 14. Now, my point here is not to do an extensive analysis of Romans, the Romans passage, but simply to understand this as it relates to the foundation of the doctrine in Genesis chapter 3. So in Romans 12, Romans 5.12, we read, Therefore... Just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it sounds like, and it's true, that there's a lot of concepts just being thrown at us, one after the other here. As Paul is working his way through his his development of his ideas in Romans, he is rigorous in his theology, but he's also beginning to get a little excited. I think that, and this is just my own imagination. But I think that as Paul is developing this and and remember Paul has already written the epistle to the Galatians. Galatians is sort of Romans in a in a much smaller epistle. And we went through Galatians five years ago and in order to understand a lot of passages that are just briefly covered in Romans I mean in, in Galatians, we went over to Romans to see their their greater development and we spent some time on the doctrine of imputation at that time. So Paul is developing these concepts, and in Romans 1 through 3, he lays down the guilt of man. He looks at the guilt of the Gentiles and then the guilt of the Jews in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And in Romans 3, he concludes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the next issue is how can man have the kind of righteousness that God requires? God is a perfect God. He is a personal God and an infinite God. And God is a God who has integrity. And in His integrity, we have seen that there are several different components. First of all, there is the righteousness of God, which is the standard of His integrity. The righteousness of God sets forth His absolute standard, and the justice of God The justice of God is the application of that standard to God's creatures. In the integrity of God, we also have the love of God, which is the expression of his integrity toward mankind. I think in the past I have used the word motivation, and I have I am correcting myself on that. The reason I did that was based on a sloppy translation in the English Bible. We look at John 3.16, and John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And it makes it sound as if the reason for God sending his son is because he loved the world. But The Greek text in John 3.16 starts off with a comparative adverb, and it should be translated, God loved the world in this manner. God loved the world in this manner that he sent his son. You see the difference? If you translate it, God so loved the world that he gave, it makes it seem as if love is the motivation. But, in fact, if it means God loved the world in this way that he gave, then what we see is that love is an expression of his integrity. Love is an expression of his integrity, and then it is combined with his veracity or truth. His veracity or truth, which is the foundation of his integrity. God is Truth, Whatever God stands for, whatever God expresses is absolute truth. Well, this is God's standard, his absolute righteousness, and man has to meet that standard. But Paul concludes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned so that no individual comes up to that standard. At our very best, we're light years below it. So if no one can do anything that measures up to God's standard, if indeed, as we have in Isaiah 65, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, then that the very best that we can do are, are, are things that are considered to be uh, filthy rags in God's sight and completely rejected by God, then somehow there needs to be a solution so that man can have perfect righteousness, so Paul begins to develop that idea in Romans chapter 4, and there he goes back to Abraham. See, the New Testament doctrines, and this is why I'm teaching this the way I'm teaching it, is that New Testament doctrines are all grounded in something in Genesis. So that if you do away with Genesis, you do away with the, with, with uh, The New Testament and these key doctrines in the New Testament. So we, what I'm trying to show you is the, as we go through Genesis, is the historical origin of these doctrines in the, in the New Testament. So we see that all have sinned, uh, in Romans 3, and then in Romans 4, he goes back to Abraham and shows that Abraham was justified by faith alone. All Abraham had to do was believe God. He didn't do anything on his own. He simply believed God, and belief or faith is non-meritorious. This is an idea that is so poorly understood today. It is non-meritorious. That means that faith is not the reason for your salvation. God doesn't save you because you believe. It is through faith. Faith is a secondary means, but it is not the cause of salvation. That means that the merit lies in the object. To, to become saved, you have to believe something. And it is that object of faith that has the merit. And the object of faith is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That You believe that Jesus paid the penalty on the cross for your sins, That that in his payment... Everything was was taken care of, that God's righteousness and justice were completely satisfied by Jesus Christ's uh, judicial payment of that sin penalty on the cross. So that the benefit, the value, is all in the object, and that's the cross. So in Romans 4... Paul lays out the doctrine of justification by faith alone that we are justified by faith and that faith in Christ and that's all that is necessary it's not faith plus anything else it is faith alone then in Romans 5 he starts to unpack the meaning of this, the implications of this. And the first issue is is peace with God, reconciliation. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And verses 1 through 11 develop the idea of our reconciliation And the joy that we have, notice we have, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, and then in verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So peace and reconciliation package those first 11 verses. And from that he then says, therefore, now the therefore in verse 12 is not a therefore where he's deriving a conclusion from verse 11. He is building on everything he says in 1 through 11. It is a conclusion based on the entire uh, context of those first 11 verses. So he begins with a therefore, and then he says, Just as... And this introduces the first part of a contrast, but Paul is getting so excited about what he's unpacking as he's coming to understand, I think, in a a richer way, the implications of justification by faith alone, that he he begins to just sort of skip through and hit the high points. And you have examples of different kinds of, uh, of style here. He uses ellipsis, which means... That he leaves out words, he jumps from one phrase to the other, and that is called brachylogy, where you leave out words, and then aposio pieces, where you just break off a sentence. You just, you, you make a statement, you come to a certain point, and you're just overwhelmed by what you just said, and you just stop, and then you jump over, and that's indicated, if you look at your English translation, there's probably a long M dash at the end of verse 12. That's because he doesn't finish the sentence. It's called Apostio He just breaks it off, and it indicates the the excitement and the enthusiasm of the writer as he is developing his thought. But he starts off and he says, Just as through one man's sin entered the world, but he never finishes the comparison. Well, he doesn't finish the comparison until verse 18, where he picks up the idea again. He says, Therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So in verse 18, he he completes the comparison, and the point he is making in verses 12 through 17 is that death has come to all men, but, contrast, even so, it is through one man's righteous act that we have justification and salvation. That's in verse 18. Well, in verse 12, he's focusing on the condemnation aspect. And he says, just as through one man, and that one man is Adam. Because of Adam's decision, sin entered into the world. And here we have the aorist active indicative of the verb ercomai. And ercomai is just your basic Greek word, ace, erikomai, E-I-S-E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, means to go into or to enter, for, used for entering a building, it's used for uh, demons who enter into a person in demon possession, ace erchomai" And this is a culminative aorist, It's an aorist tense, and as a culminative aorist, it looks at the conclusion of a process. It looks at the completion of an action in past time, and that indicates that Adam's sin entered the world at one time in human history, and that is a completed action that took place when Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3. That that sin ended the age of perfect environment, ended the first dispensation, violated God's covenant, that he had established his creation covenant with Adam and plunged the human race into sin. So that prior to Adam's fall, God's love was the basis for man's relationship with God and the foundation of his fellowship. But after Adam sinned, after Adam sinned, the point of contact shifted from God's love to God's righteousness and justice. These had to be satisfied before these had to be satisfied before God could save mankind. So as we look at Romans 5:12, we read therefore just as through one man that is Adam, sin that is Adam's original sin, entered into the world. This is not the sin nature. This is Adam's original sin. It entered into the world, and death, that is spiritual death, through sin, through Adam's original sin. And so death spread, that is spiritual death spread to all men because all sinned. Actually, the phrase in the Greek is a preposition epi, uh, plus the dative of the relative article indicating the idea that for this reason or because for this reason all sin so that all mankind sins because spiritual death has been impu- is the situation in man. Now this takes place because man is born with a genetically formed sin nature to which Adam's original sin is imputed and the result of this Is spiritual death, this occurs at the instant of birth. All of this happens instantaneously and simultaneously. Now, that explains man's condition. That is why there is so much sin and suffering in the world is because man is under condemnation. He is spiritually dead. He is separated from God. He cannot understand divine things, and he does not understand the truth of God's Word. Then... We look at verse 13 in this passage. We'll skip ahead a few slides. For, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, the point that Paul was addressing here is that there were many Jews who taught that it was the Mosaic law that, con- that condemned man because they failed to obey the law. They were under condemnation. But the problem is that the Mosaic Law doesn't, def- doesn't uh, define sin. It's not the basis for condemnation. It exposes sin. This is a major thing to understand. Most people think, or under the con- misconception, that the purpose of the Mosaic Law was to define sin but see all of the things that are sin in the mosaic law had been sin for 2000 years before the mosaic law it was it was a sin to commit murder in Genesis 4 as we will see when we begin the next section next week or in two or three weeks i've got a couple a couple of other doctrines we'll cover but when we get to Cain and Abel murder is a sin in chapter 4 it's not passed over until the Mosaic Law comes. So the Mosaic Law doesn't define sin, but it is designed to expose sin in the life of the nation Israel. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was designed to expose man's inability to live up to God's righteous standard. Romans seven seven. what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And there's Paul's statement, sin is exposed through the law. For example, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now the point of this then is that personal sin is not the basis for condemnation. We are not condemned because of what we do. We are condemned because of what Adam did. Condemnation is based on Adam's original sin. As a result of that, we are born condemned. You are born a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. That's always a conundrum that always gets people. And I love to throw it at them. Are you a sinner because you sin or, uh, or, or, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Do you sin because you're a sinner, or are you a sinner because you sin? And the Bible teaches that you sin because you're a sinner. The other view is what was known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism, Pelagius was a British monk that taught that there was no imputation of Adam's original sin. He was a contemporary of Augustine in the in the fifth century, and he taught that every man, every baby is born just as Adam was created completely free of any sin and has complete free will. Now, I always draw a distinction between volition and free will. And by free will, you mean unfettered will, unfettered by the sin nature, everybody's will is to some degree affected by the sin nature simply because we cannot perceive absolute truth apart from some aid by the holy spirit man left on his own can never understand truth apart from the holy spirit and that's 1st corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 so we are condemned not for personal sin but for adam's original sin Uh, This is supported by 2 Corinthians 5.19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or not imputing their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation as well as Psalm 32.2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The conclusion that we draw from all of this is Adam's sin is not just his sin. Adam's sin is our sin. It's the sin of the entire human race. All of Adam's descendants are born in a state of hopelessness, helplessness, and under condemnation. They are born with a corruption that means that there is nothing in any of us that allows us to do anything to merit salvation. We cannot be saved apart from The grace of God and apart from the aid, the divine aid of of God. He enables us at some point. The Holy Spirit operates as a human spirit to make the gospel clear at salvation. Without the operation of the Holy Spirit, there would not be an understanding of the gospel at salvation. But we have to remember that positive volition and faith are non-meritorious. You can express faith. You can express volition. It is not the cause of salvation. It's not the cause of God's love for you. It is merely the means of appropriating the work of Christ on the cross. Therefore, we are saved. Through faith and not because of faith, you don't have any reason to pat yourself on the back to tell yourself how bright you were because you managed to understand the gospel and make the right choice. You understood the gospel because of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it is totally and exclusively the work of the grace of God. We can't take any pleasure, we can't take any benefit on ourselves. It has nothing to do with us whatsoever with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to get such a clear understanding of the problem in the human race, the problem of sin, the problem of guilt. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is to simply put your faith alone In Christ alone, that there is no hope, there is no salvation, there is no eternal life apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we just pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.